Welcome to Blind Spots, a podcast where we're helping you fill the gap between what you want to do with your money and what you actually do. We are professional investors, writers, and financial planners helping you navigate the complexities of finance to optimize what you can control and cut out the rest. Join your host, Nick Shermans and Aaron Varghese, as we discuss the questions and nuances surrounding everyday money management. Welcome back, everybody, to Happy Half Hour with Nick and Toby, our little spin on blind spots, talking markets, current events, personal stuff. So what's going on with you today, Toby? Uh, a lot of stuff going on. Everything's going well. Well, I would push back. Not everything is going well. The markets have been a sea of red and really annoying. And one of the, th- one of the biggest things that annoys me, and look, I know investing is not always easy, right? The last 10 years coming out of the financial crisis, I think a lot of people got used to a Goldilocks backdrop with low rates and low inflation, markets basically going up. When rates go up, when there's unexpected inflation, things get weird. Things are getting weird now. But there's so many confusing things happening where someone could think they're being defensive and buy intermediate longer-term treasury bonds or invest in utilities, consumer staples, some of these more conservative sectors, and actually perform worse than someone piling into the riskiest corners in the market, like tech stocks or you know some of these other themes that have done well, uh, where you would think they would not do well. Yeah, and that's a good jumping off point because the, the first question I had for you today is specifically about fixed income. And, you know, people look at the results of fixed income and I get questions from folks that say, why do we own it? You know, should we be getting out of fixed income altogether uh, or is is there a reason to continue to own fixed income given how poorly it's done over the last uh, two, three years? So how would you uh, respond to that and how should folks be thinking about that? Well, there's a lot to unpack there and fixed income, unfortunately, is the least straightforward asset class on planet Earth. But I will say, it turns out that unexpected higher inflation and higher interest rates are bad for all asset classes, but especially longer maturity bonds, okay? And and part of what makes this environment so uncomfortable, back to my opening comments, you could think you're being safe. And in this case, the more conservative investor that you are, it's likely that you're doing worse than someone who's more aggressive, which kind of flips everything we know about risk and return and finance on its head. It goes back to my comment, the higher inflation and higher rates are bad for all asset classes, but especially bonds. Now let's, let's zoom out and look at what bonds have done. This is the worst three-year stretch for bonds in almost a hundred years. So one thing I don't want to do is act like bonds are broken. Bonds are dead. Borrowing and lending is the oldest form of finance. So this is always going to be around. I think bond investing, when you look forward, is more attractive, arguably, than it's been in a decade plus, because current yield, as I've wrote about, is a great predictor, great explainer for future bond returns. And what that means is the starting the higher yield, the better future return profile for bond investors. What we're seeing now is a kind of an odd cocktail where you're getting a Fed who's not committed to keeping rates stable. They could hike once or twice more. You have a a fiscal situation that's getting worse, not only in the U.S., but abroad. And then you're seeing these 
sophisticated institutional hedge, hedge funds and institutional investors actually short bonds, putting further downward pressure on bond prices and upward pressure on yield. So I don't have all the answers, but I can tell you for someone that's buying triple A rated, double A rated investment grade corporate or muni or U.S. Treasury bonds, the future return profile looks better than it's looked in years. Now, I'm not advocating buying 30 or 40 year bonds. Those are very sensitive to when rates go up. But if you're investing in one to 10 year maturities and you're buying individual bonds that I just talked about, you're probably going to see a, a decent real return on your money. And how do you compare and contrast cash to fixed income in this environment? Again, you know, I've read certain things that say, ah, you're better off just staying in cash as opposed to owning short-term, intermediate-term fixed income. How do you think about cash in a portfolio today and compare and contrast that to fixed income? Yeah, cash cash isn't the worst thing. I mean, again, you can invest in a money market fund and get five plus percent. That's great. A couple unintended consequences with cash. One, as we just podcasted about, the, in, the investment income coming out of a money market fund are taxable at both federal and potentially state if you live in an income tax state. That's not necessarily true with fixed income. There are certain tax advantages that you get from investing in a muni bond or even a treasury bond. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, if interest rates do happen to go down, those money market funds, those cash funds, those savings accounts adjust down very quickly. It's almost one-to-one. -one. So if the Fed cuts, you're going to be receiving on day one a lower amount of interest. Okay, And the third thing, it's kind of in the same vein, is if interest rates do go down, bond prices tend to go up. And again, you're not getting that tailwind of an appreciating bond when you're invested in a money market account. But I always say like, hey, look, if, if you need, if you have cash or if you have something that you're going to buy in six months, a house or whatever, keep it in a money market fund. It's liquid. It's transparent. Um, it's probably going to be there when you're ready to use it. Everything else, more longer term monies, a intentional fixed income portfolio is probably better. No, that's helpful. And and just a reminder, you know, we don't we can't give tax advice. But uh, when Nick talks about that, he's talking from a high level in terms of of how uh, different things may be taxed or may impact your tax situation. But obviously, you'd want to consult with a CPA if you had specific questions on how how something might impact you. Okay, uh, next question I had, and it's it's sort of in the same vein because what's top of mind for people today are the things that aren't working. You know, nobody's complaining if something's working. So um, the, the question would be related to the Magnificent Seven. These are the stocks that Tesla, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, et cetera, that have done so well and really buoyed the entire market this year. And I know that if, you know, we've looked at some data where if you pull those stocks out, uh, you know, the rest of the market is really essentially flat. And so my question for you is, you know, how do you explain the impact of, of those stocks and what should investors do today relative to, to those stocks? Because there's some people that feel like, hey, I should put more money in those stocks because that's the only thing working. And yet I think you and I believe that those stocks are, are expensive today on a price to earnings basis. Yeah, and I, and I look at it actually much more simple than that because because PE can be a little misleading. It's it's a bad timing tool. Just because something's expensive doesn't mean it can't get more expensive. I tend to look at it through a different lens, and I've wrote about this in the past, where 
Having 10 stocks explain a good chunk of an index's performance is nothing new. Sure, the sectors might change, the players might change, but it's nothing new. If you go back every decade for the last 10, 10 or so decades, it might be oil, oil stocks, it might be banking stocks. Now it just so happens to be tech stocks. So that doesn't necessarily still spell doom for the index. However, we also have tracked future performance once a company gets to be so big. And while it's common for leadership to be concentrated in a handful of stocks, it's uncommon for those huge mega stocks to be leaders tomorrow. So what that means is it's not uncommon for the largest companies on earth to fall off the corporate mountain and to become uh, less of a player. Now they could be sold, they could be broken up, uh, they could go bankrupt, they could be bought. But the, the, the key takeaway is just the sheer size of a lot of these companies. I mean, we're getting into the trillion dollar market caps. It's really hard to go from a billion dollar company to a $10 billion company. It's almost unprecedented and unheard of to go from a $1 trillion company to a $3 tr trillion company. So investors that are wanting to pile in or performance chase, know that your future returns for a lot of these big players are likely to be less than what you might expect. That's not to say you can't earn a market return in Apple or Google or Tesla or Microsoft, but know that you're probably not going to be clipping the 30 to 40% returns. And then the last thing I'll say is it's it's almost thought of as big tech being the new defensives. Like back in 2020, during the COVID sell-off, tech was a good place to hide because we were all locked inside pushing buttons on our phone. No one would really know that. Like, like you never could have predicted that, but it turned out that was a good thing for tech. Fast forward to this year, interest rates have gone up. Investors are risk averse. Safe assets have gotten crushed. Bonds have been a, or excuse me, tech has been a safe haven. So it, it, it really is confounding on multiple levels, but that safe haven narrative, I think you can poke holes in it when you look at what tech did in 2022. So a lot of these tech companies, if you start January 1st, 2022 and track performance to today are still down 10 plus percent, but the range of outcomes is like minus 40% plus 60%. Like, so sure you can own these stocks. I wouldn't go overboard. It could be a small percentage of your of, of your investable uh, of your investable assets. Know that if you own the S and P, you own a good chunk of these stocks as well. So even if you don't own them directly, you probably own them indirectly. Yeah. What What are ways that you know when the market becomes uh, challenging or confounding? I think was a word that we talked about this week. Um, what are some ways that you deal with that? And what are ways that investors may want to deal with that? In other words, when the market's going up 5, 10, 15% a year, you know, people don't worry too much about their portfolio and they go about their, their everyday business. Sometimes when the market isn't cooperating and the market's down for a year or two in a row, uh, people, people can get stressed out by that. People can uh, not quite know how to, to, to manage that. Do you have any advice for, for them in that situation? So look, no one likes to lose money. I don't like it. You don't like it. Clients don't like it. No one wants to see a sea of red. However, I've been doing this for a long time. I write a lot. I read a lot. And I think a lot of times people just need to get in touch with history. And, and I think in probabilities. I don't make predictions, but I think in probabilities. And when you look at history, 70% of the time the market goes up. 20% of the time the market is flat or goes down like a modest amount, like five to 10%. The other 10% of the time, things can get weird. 
I'm talking the 2008s, the 2020s, the 2022s. Okay. Most of the poor behaviors or the emotional decisions or just the cognitive biases stem from rejecting losses. Like people don't want to lose money. People hate losses more than they enjoy gains. But I think if you do that, if, if you're trying to market time, you're trying to predict and just enjoy the upswings and shun the downswings, you're setting yourself up for failure. Because think of investment losses as the cost of admission. You can't get plus 10% a year without getting the occasional loss. If there wasn't the occasional loss, then every other asset class on earth would not exist. Like bank accounts wouldn't exist. Bonds wouldn't exist. Real estate investing would not exist if you could just print 10% every year in, in, in the stock market. So I think just getting grounded in history, accepting losses, that, that doesn't mean you're, you're setting out to lose money. Just certainly have a risk management a risk management approach in place, a framework for making decisions, build a portfolio that reflects the way you feel about risk. But it's also okay just to say investment losses are part of it. I'm a long-term investor. I'm invested according with my risk profile. I know this is eventually going to turn around. And throughout history, that's been the case. That's not to say you can't have a stretch where it's difficult. You can't have a stretch where you lose money. But I think perspective is key. 70% of the market goes up. 20% it goes down, 10% of the time it gets weird. Yeah, and I think the the area that we can help folks is, you know, we like to revisit the financial plan for our clients on an annual basis. And sometimes when the market is volatile or the market is not cooperating, making sure that you sit down and look at where you're at and where you're headed can be a good um, check and balance and, and can help you feel more comfortable that, hey, despite the current challenges and and, and this year, you know, we're actually up in the stock market, but despite the challenges we've been seeing the last couple of years, you're still on track to do the things you want to do. You're on track for retirement. You're on track to pay for kids' education. And those are really the critical factors. So kind of revisiting that financial plan with your advisor can, can also be a way to, to be more comfortable with what's going on around us. Well, and that's a really good point. And one of the things that 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 we do within our financial plans, there's negative market outcomes baked into that. Like there's there's stress. Like we want to understand if the market goes down by 30% and your portfolio goes down by 15%, how does that impact your long-term plan? So we're constantly stressing, creating a margin of safety because as we've seen the last three years, your plan is probably not going to go according to plan. It's our job to keep you on the rails if things don't work out in markets or other external factors to focus on the things you can control. That's, that's how much you pay in fees, how much you pay in taxes, your own behaviors, the financial planning process, how much risk you're taking. So during a time like this or during a time like 2022, it's okay to accept we're all going to feel some pain. In a recessionary environment, when every asset class is down, we're all going to feel some pain. Our lens turns to mitigating damage, to focus on to focusing on what you can control. That's good. What questions do you have for me today? So these are these are kind of everywhere. But the first question I have for you is, are you a politics guy? Like, do you follow the political drama in Washington? Like, you don't have to tell me what side you're on. Like, I don't care about that. But are you sucked into the vortex? The only reason that I follow politics is where it has an impact on markets. I really can't, almost can't stomach uh, the political, uh, you know, back and forth that we get 
and it obviously gets heightened during election years, which we'll have next year. But um, I just, it, it really bothers me. So I pay attention only to glean any clues or any indications as to what impact they might have on markets. Uh, but the whole process itself, I think every election we come up to and go through, uh, I have more disdain for the entire process. What about you? Oh, I absolutely shun politics. Like one of our neighbors invited my wife and I over to talk to some person that was running for the mayor of Camas. And she was texting all this stuff about his agenda and talking. And I'm like, you couldn't pay me enough money to show up to something like that. I think our entire political process is broken. And I don't pay attention to it. I think if you're sucked in, you've lost. But that's just my own personal. So back to your comment, something that's very interesting, because I actually do the opposite. I don't pay attention to politics because I don't want it to leak into our investment process or how I think about investing. And I think a lot of people do that. And a perfect example of this was back in 2016 when President Trump was kind of this dark horse candidate and then no one gave him much of a chance. And then he started to gain some traction and everyone kept saying, oh, if Trump is elected, the market's going to tank. And I'm not saying the market went higher because of Trump. It's just like the, like there's all these narratives based on who wins or loses what the market is going to do. And almost 99.9% .9 of the time, they're absolutely wrong. Just, just because you know or think you know the outcome of an election doesn't mean the market's going to respond the way that you think it should. And in my opinion, emotion's bad in the investment process. Politics are full of emotion. I want to keep them separate. So – the only pushback I would have is is history's not riddled with hot political takes and investment ex investment success. Yeah, the the line I saw the other day that I liked was that we're we're in an extended bear market for political leadership. Oh, hundred percent. I've got one more question for you. Um, I've got more for you is, too. Oh well, why don't you jump in and we'll save mine till the okay. end. Okay. Where do you get your news and financial information from? I get it from a variety of sources. I may be the only person that still has a subscription to the newspaper. Uh, obviously, online is where a lot of that content comes from, including uh, Twitter, now now X. Uh, I just find it's a good way to gather information. You have to recognize that the algorithms are feeding it to you in a certain manner, in a certain way. But in terms of gathering news, gathering input, gathering information, uh, that's probably the biggest source of, of information today. And again, you got to take it with a grain of salt and take it with a filter uh, so you don't get you know led down the, the wrong path. But uh, that's the best way that I gather information today is, is via Twitter or X or newspaper or other uh, research services and subscriptions that I take. So you've got a few uh, that you plop on my desk every now and again. A follow-up question on that. So do you tend to seek opinions that confirm your own outlook and biases or those that challenge your viewpoints? I am human at the end of the day. So despite me trying to avoid my biases leaking in, when you read something that agrees with your thought process, you tend to give that more credence. That's a, a known bias out there. But I do try to get uh, I probably subscribe to eight to 10 different newsletters or monthly uh, updates, and I try to get a variety of opinions. Some people look at fundamentals, some people look at technicals, some people look at uh, sentiment. And I like to gather all of that information and then, you know, synthesize it through and think about it from my standpoint. But uh, I'm guilty, like everybody, of 
if someone agrees with me, they've, they've got to be right. Next question. So when you're in a social setting with family and friends, and, and obviously people know what you do for a living, and the markets are going crazy, do you engage when someone asks you your opinion on markets or what the market does next? Yeah, I'm not sure it's, it's uh, you know, obviously it depends on the situation, but I'm not sure it's worthwhile to get into a back and forth on, on you know, what markets are going to do. Now, if somebody asks me my opinion, you know, I'll share with them my opinion, but I try to keep, you know, try to keep our views and our approach and what I think might happen, you know, kind of out of the, out of the discourse. How about you? I absolutely can't stand it. It's like, it's like when you spend all day doing something, the last thing you want to be doing is what you do for a living. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I mean, I guess it's kind of a blessing, but I, I have blogged for six years and my known opinions are out there and people tend to come up to me and want to engage in market talk and they'll tell me their opinions and they'll say, you know, if this candidate gets elected or that, you know, so I, I, I get blitzed with this stuff and it is fatiguing. And there's a time and a place, like if we're sitting down during the weekday lunch and you want to talk, that's fine. When I'm warming up on a Saturday morning to play golf and you accost me with hot market talk, like that's where I draw the line. So once I do retire, I, I would probably have little interest in invest. I, I might even hire someone to just invest the money and I probably wouldn't even look at it much. Like I just, I just get burned out because I mean, we work a lot, we talk a lot, we read a lot, we write a lot. And it's just, uh, sometimes you just need a break. You need to step outside and get some perspective and just take a breath. Nope, that's good. Last question I have for you, and this is kind of a softball, but we'll let you take it wherever you like. What is something that you're jazzed about, excited about, enthused about as we head into year end 2023 and into a new year in 2024? We've got about 90 days left in the year. So what's something that you're excited about that you have going on either professionally, personally, wherever you want to go with it? This is going to sound really stupid and cheesy, but it's something that I'm really, really trying to be more mindful of. And that's just not looking forward so much and just appreciating the moment that I'm in. I'm like, like we're all conditioned to think about the next thing. Like when you're in preschool, it's, it's to get ready for kindergarten. When you're in high school, you got to study and take the SATs to get ready for college. And I think we miss moments and we miss life. And I'm, I'm so guilty of this. And I, I read a book that changed my perspective on this. And when you think about life, it's really moments stacked up on top of each other. So I'm not trying to rob myself of the current moment by thinking about the future. Yeah, there's things I want to do. There's things we have planned. But sometimes I think we, we just miss the moment. We miss life that's happening in front of us and we're constantly thinking about the next thing. So to answer your question, I'm focused on doing the best I can in this moment. Once I get home, I'm going to fully engage with my kids. We have soccer tonight. I'm just gonna, I'm just going to pour everything I have into the moment that's in front of me. I went to a family wedding over the weekend, and the officiant at the wedding, the proverb that he put out there was "Be where your feet are." Yes, love it. And I thought that was I thought that was a good one. Yeah, I have some more questions for you, and then we'll put a bow on this because this is the happy half hour. You can't go over a half hour in the happy half hour. That's stupid. All right, coming up in your investment career, right? Who was your investment hero or someone that you looked up to in the business? Good question. You know, I probably have followed markets since I was 10 or 12 years old. So back in the days of like Peter Lynch 
famous uh, Fidelity Magellan mm -hmm. portfolio manager. Uh, he was someone that early on I thought was interesting because he talked about, you know, invest in things you know. If you yeah. wear Nike shoes, you think they make a good product, then consider investing in Nike, you know, rather than some biotech company that you really don't have any any knowledge of. So I thought, you know, he was certainly one growing up. Um, but a, a lot of the fund managers, Bill Gross from a bond standpoint, so just some of the higher profile uh, investment managers, you know, understanding their thought process, understanding how they do what they do. Not that I was ever going to, you know, copy it or emulate it, but just I found that interesting the way that they approached, you know, their particular part of the investment world. So, you know, those are a couple of folks. And then I, I kind of like to read folks. If you looked at the subscriptions I have today, there are people that are kind of off the beaten path and people that are out of the mainstream. Because again, I can get the mainstream view anytime I want in, you know, ad nauseum. But getting people that have a different take, different a different perspective, I find that more valuable and helpful in as I think about markets. Sure. Okay. So let's let's talk about the Peter Lynch thing. So buying buying what you know. If there were five or six companies that would explain the Toby index, like what would be in the Toby index? What stocks? Again, I, I probably have and I'm sure you could comment as well, but from where I started to where I am today, my perspective on markets and investing has changed pretty dramatically. I used to think you just go buy 25 stocks of companies you like and and you're set. And I didn't worry about sector and I didn't worry about geography and I didn't worry about anything else. You know, I, I think I've, I've uh, been indoctrinated or learned over time that having diversification, owning, you know, 100, 200, 500 companies is a better way to grow your wealth uh, long-term than to try to stock pick and, and uh, you know, beat the market that way. I just think the people that can do it are few and far between, and those people, you know, struggle to do it over an extended period of time. So I think, you know, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's more my perspective than picking individual stocks. There's companies I don't like, uh, and there's companies I like, and I'll, I'll nibble on those, but it's almost more of a, a sideline, you know, a yeah, sideline, right. not a, not a core portfolio, you know, investment. So, so that's all good stuff, but let me rephrase my question, rephrase my question. So if we were to create a Peter Lynch style index, buying what you know for Toby, so what are the five or six products or companies that you use that would make up your own personal program reflected in an investment portfolio? Like if you wear Nike shoes and, and yeah, you drive I a mean, Tesla. From my perspective, it would all be things that we spend far too much money on today. So Nike, uh, my family, every once in a while gets an opportunity to go to the employee, employee store, okay. which is great because you can buy all sorts of things, but it can be expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, Costco, same story. So uh, that would be in the portfolio somewhere. You know, I, I use Apple products. So, I mean, I can look around me and I see an Apple iPhone, I see Apple AirPods. So, you know, I think that's another one. Um, Amazon is, you know, I, I'm i sure everybody feels the same way, but it sometimes, especially during the holidays, feels like they're at our house multiple times a day. So, yeah, those are some of the obvious ones that, you know, we spend a, a good chunk of money on every week, month, quarter, year. So that those four stocks are up quite a bit this year. The Toby Index, 
might be a future strategy. That'd be pretty good. It's a good idea. It's a good idea. Toby, let's flip that back to you. What are you excited about professionally or personally as we head into your end? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, you know, we have a lot of interesting and exciting things going on here at Pure. You know, sometimes we have to take a step back and look at, at where we've come from this year as a company. And it's really easy to get caught up in the day-to-day, caught up in the market minutia. But, you know, I look at the team that we have at Pure and every one of them to a person has really uh, grown this year. You know, Erin got her uh, CFP this year, which is a big deal. Uh, excited for her and all the work that went into that. Uh, Colin Purcell, who handles operations and compliance, uh, picked up a compliance certification that he put a lot of time and effort into. You know, Julie continues to to handle, and we throw new software, we throw new processes. We're always trying to improve how we do things, and she, you know, just rolls with it and, and finds a way to continue to to add value to her, to clients and and the team. So. I'm just excited about everything that we've done this year and the position that puts us in moving forward uh, to better serve our clients. Uh, We've made an offer uh, and it's been accepted to another advisor and we'll certainly introduce him on a future podcast. Um, But we're excited about having an addition to the team uh, join us in October. So those are some of the things I'm excited about from a pure portfolio standpoint, you know, as we head into the end of the year. That's good stuff. All right. So this is the end of Happy Half Hour. We're going to do this once a month going forward. If you have any questions, insults, or feedback, send a note to insight at pureportfolios.com. See you next time. 